Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our Bibles now in hand and turn to Romans chapter 5. Our text today, verses 6 through 11. Romans 5, 6 through 11. One of my favorite hymns we just sang, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. That is speaking of the doctrine of assurance that we can know that we are born again, that our souls are safe in the arms of Jesus. In fact, the title of the message today is Justified Forever. Occasionally when a pastor is preparing a sermon in his office, the text speaks so powerfully that it seems like Sunday will never come so he can share it with uh, his friends. So such was my experience this week with today's text. The theme of Romans, of course, is the doctrine of justification by faith. That is the one and only way that sinful people like us can be reconciled to a holy God who has a fixed disposition of anger and wrath towards all sin. It's by that free gift of grace appropriated by humble faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul who wrote this letter spent many words in the first quarter of that book firmly establishing that truth that there's only one way to heaven. Now in chapter 5 he transitions to a treatment of the implications of the doctrine of justification by faith. We saw four of those implications last week. The first one was our new peace. That is we have a cessation of hostilities between a holy God and ourselves. We no longer are called enemies, but we're called sons and daughters, and Jesus calls us his friends. We have a new hope. We have a promise of a better day ahead. We're never promised that we won't suffer or have trials and tribulations in this life. In fact, we're promised that we will. But as was said of Jesus in the book of Hebrews, for the joy set before him, he suffered and endured the cross. And we can endure through any type of circumstance in life, knowing that on the other side of that, there's heaven. It also gives us a new perspective on that suffering. Suffering is no longer something that's the worst thing that could ever happen, something to be avoided at all costs. Suffering is viewed as the means through which God sanctifies us, like passing us through a fire and purifying us and making us stronger so that we can be the most useful and sharpest tool in his hands that we can be. And it gives us also, we saw a new love, God's love shed abroad or poured over us As David says, my cup overflows and other people benefit by being around us. So this morning we look at another incredibly important implication of the doctrine of justification by faith. And that is the joy that comes through assurance of salvation. Last week we said that it's not uncommon this time of year to open a Christmas card and on the front there's the word peace. Joy is probably the second most common word that we find on those cards. So Last week we talked about peace, this week joy. Let's read our text. Romans 5, 6 through 11. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone will dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Not only this, but we also exult in God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. May the Lord add his blessing, the reading and hearing of his word. As we walk through these verses this morning, I want you to take particular note of four words that the apostle uses to describe every believer before we're saved. Those words are helpless, ungodly, sinners, and enemies. Another word for helpless is weak. It means lacking strength or power to change the situation. We were in sin and powerless to change our circumstance. We were ungodly. That is not just that we were unlike God, but that we were anti-God. We were opposed to his rule. We chafed under it, Romans 1 and 2 said. And we are sinners. That is, we have failed to live up to God's standards. And that includes every one of us, according to Romans 3.23. And it's worse than that. As I tell my kids when they are subject to complain about their circumstance, cheer up, it's going to get worse. <laughs> this gets worse. We're called enemies. We would get rid of God if we could before we're saved. And so now, that's not a very flattering picture of humanity, is it? Last Sunday morning... After the service, a young couple approached me outside in the hallway and uh, we had a wonderful conversation about my understanding of the nature of God and the nature of man. And the husband who is in seminary uh, and I were using those big words we learned in seminary and the wife said, in other words, you have a very high view of God and a very low view of humanity. Conversation was over. She summed it up perfectly. That's exactly right because that's what the Bible says. God says in the Bible that man left to himself is helpless, ungodly, sinful by nature and a declared enemy of God. God, on the other hand, is omnipotent, unchangeable, holy, and merciful to offer peace to even his harshest enemies. Now, how in the world does that relate to our subject matter today? Joy. Well, in chapter 5, Paul uses the term three times that we translate in our English Bibles as exult. And we saw last week that exult means to express incredible joy because of a victory or a triumph that has occurred. He says we exult in hope, we exult in tribulation, and exult in God. Now, How many people do you know that live life consistently like that? That is, their life, regardless of circumstances, can be described as exultation, joy because of triumph. And that's why... By Monday afternoon of this week, I couldn't wait for Sunday to get here because I want that kind of joy in my own life and I want you, my friends, to have that same kind of joy as well. But to have a life like that, that's marked by exaltation, I'm convinced there are at least three truths that must be firmly established in your heart and mind. Number one, that you are deserving of God's wrath. Does that make you want to celebrate that you're exerting? But you have to have that truth as the black backdrop against which the white grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is seen. You can't appreciate and understand the greatness of your salvation unless you know that you're undeserving of it. Second truth you have to have firmly in your heart and mind is that God has justified you. That he has pronounced you no longer guilty. Your sins are forgiven. Can't have true joy without that knowledge. And then finally, which is our subject matter today, you need to know and understand and be firmly convinced that God will never change his mind towards you. In other words, to have the joy that the Bible speaks of, you have to know that you are justified forever. 
And we call that the assurance of salvation. Now, this is Paul's purpose in this particular section of Scripture in the book of Romans, is to explain why and how we can and should have assurance of salvation. And I'm going to give you three reasons from the text today, each one of them a separate point on your outline. So if you have your outline in hand, let's look to it now. Number one, because Jesus justifies. Remember the definition of justification we've been using. God's acquitting sinners based on the righteousness and atonement of his son through faith. It's a legal term. It's of a judge pounding the gavel and declaring a person not guilty. If you say, well, Pastor, you just said we are guilty. Yes, you are. I am too. But God is a, has a sovereign plan, and he had that sovereign plan before time existed. That is, he determined to save a people unto himself. Scripture calls us a royal priesthood, and Paul here declares that that came about at just the right time. Now, what that tells us is that you're not an accident of history, that all of this eternal plan of redemption played out in time and space, in real time, just as God determined it would. And it's continuing to play out. And human history will find its culmination, as Brother Matt reminded us this morning, in the second coming of the Lord Jesus. And just as surely as the Old Testament promised that Messiah would come for the first time, and he did, we proclaim today that Jesus is coming again to judge the world, and he will. God was able to be both merciful and just because of substitutionary atonement, because he is a just judge. There had to be accountability. God's just not going to pretend he didn't see our sin or sweep it under the rug. Because he's just, he must deal with that sin. And he has through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Because we couldn't do it. Remember that first word that Paul used to describe us before we're saved? We were weak. We were unable to do anything about our circumstance. But Jesus is not weak. He, as God, is omnipotent, and he was and is able and did live a sinless life and died a literal death, and God has accepted us in the beloved. So the justice of God was satisfied. We call that propitiation. And we know that he was satisfied. Why? Because of the resurrection. Remember that we said that's why Paul always speaks of the resurrection when he talks about the gospel. He won't leave it out because the resurrection shows us that God is satisfied with the sacrifice of the Son. Now, God did all of this not because we deserved his love, but because he determined to love us. We all memorize John 3.16 in Bible school. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And sometimes we pat our children on the head when they finally memorize that verse and we think it's for a child. But friends, it's for everybody. In fact, I was reading this week, one of the world's most famous theologians was asked by a reporter near the end of his life, what is the most profound truth that's ever crossed your mind? And without blinking an eye, he says, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's the most profound truth. He, he can imagine that the God of the universe loved him, and he loves you as well. So here's the question before us and on your outline. What kind of people did Jesus love enough to die for? Four words describes the kind of people that Jesus loved 
enough to die for, the weak, the ungodly, the sinful, and the rebellious, people just like us. Look at verse 6 again. For while we were still helpless, weak, underline that word. At the right time, Jesus died for the ungodly, underline that word. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his love towards us, and while we were yet sinners, underline that word, Christ died for us. Now we can somewhat relate to a heroic act in which someone will take a bullet for a loved one or will throw himself on a grenade for his comrades in arms. I read with amazement this morning that this week will be the 80th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. And yesterday, 66 veterans of World War II got on a plane at Dallas-Fort Worth Airport and are flying to Hawaii. And we are amazed at the courage and bravery of people willing to lay down their life for their country and for their friends. But what the Bible speaks of with Jesus is something very different. He's talking about loving someone enough to die for them who hate you. And if they had their ability would erase you from existence. That is the love of God for sinners. That's the love the world knows nothing about. Jesus justifies the weak, the ungodly, the sinful, and the rebellious. Secondly, we can have assurance of salvation because Jesus reconciles. Look at verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, and just put a pen right there. See, it's not just that when we were saved, God brings us to a place of neutrality with himself. There are a lot of people in the world. After all, there's over 7 billion in people in the world, we're told. A lot of people we don't have a relationship with all. We don't count them friends or enemies. They're simply people that we share a planet with. And that's not what God did. He didn't bring us to a position of neutrality. What he did was he now brings us into a position of friendship of sons and daughters. Through justification by faith, God not only acquits us of sin, he reconciles us. He restores the relationship with himself and declares us sons and daughters of the Most High. James Boyce, pastor from Philadelphia, who's now with the Lord, defines reconciliation this way. He says, to reconcile is to remove the grounds of hostility and transform the relationship, changing it from one of enmity to one of friendship. That is a great theme of the Bible, is the doctrine of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Colossians 1.20, through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Friends, this is our hope as sinners, is reconciliation through Jesus Christ. Not only is it our hope, it is our message to a lost and dying world. There in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul goes on to say, therefore we are ambassadors of Christ as though God were making his appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. When we go out and do door-to-door -door evangelism or evangelism on the street or we send mission teams anywhere in the world, what we're calling people to do 
is believe on Christ and therefore be reconciled to him. It's not that they're morally neutral or that God is ambivalent to them. He is their enemy. And the only hope they have is reconciliation through Christ. This is our message and this is our hope. And so let me ask you a question again. If Jesus justifies the weak, the ungodly, the sinful, and the rebellious, what sort of people does he reconcile? I'll give you two guesses. The weak, the ungodly, the sinful, and the rebellious. Are you starting to catch on a little bit? Now, how does this relate to our assurance? Well, I think it'll come together here in just a moment. Our third point, how we can have assurance of our salvation is to know that thirdly, Jesus saves. Look at the second half of verse 10. We shall be saved by his life. Shall be saved. That's, that's a future tense, right? Now, when we speak of salvation, the Bible does, we speak of our salvation from three perspectives. There's a past, a present, and a future. The past says, if you remember your English grammar from middle school, past tense says, I was saved. Present tense says, I am being saved. And the future tense says, I will be saved. All three of those things are true according to the scripture about your salvation. In other words, if you are born again, there was a moment in time where the Holy Spirit convicted you of sin and judgment and righteousness and God granted to you by his spirit faith and repentance. And at that moment, God justified you and said, forgiven, not guilty. That happened in the past. When we give our testimony of conversion, we're talking about justification. But as you know, from that moment on until the day we die or till Christ returns, we're in the process of growing and maturing in the faith. We call that sanctification. So in a sense, we are being saved over our lifetime. But there will come a day when we spend eternity in heaven in the presence of the Lord, and that is called glorification. And so that is yet in the future. So we say, I will be saved. But the question is, saved from what? The word saved means to be rescued or to be preserved from. We might say, I, I was saved from a flood. I was saved from a fire. So the question is, from what are believers saved? Now, I hear some people say we were saved from our sins. Well, there's some truth to that. We, we were saved of what we deserve because of our sins. Some people say we were saved from the devil. Well, there, there's some truth in that. We don't have to fear the devil. He's, he's not of the same power as God. The Bible says to resist the devil and, and he'll free, flee from you. That's not really what he's speaking of here either. What he's saying is we are saved from God's wrath. Saved from God's wrath. That's what the Bible means when it says that Jesus today is seated at the right hand of the Father, ever making intercession for us. To intercede means to stand between two opposing parties. And see, God was righteously angry towards our sin, but we are in Christ. His blood has covered us. And so we no longer have to fear God's wrath, do we? And Paul says it incredibly clearly and concisely in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, when he says, There is therefore now no condemnation, no damnation, no wrath for those who are in Christ. Don't miss it. It's not we're saved from Satan. It's not even that we're saved from our sins. We are saved from God. 
and his righteous just wrath. And so he goes on to say in verse 10, we shall be saved by his life, comma, having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from what? The wrath of God through him. Now, what does he mean by the wrath of God? Now, when we started this study some months back, chapter one, we looked at the wrath of God and we, says, we said it's two perspectives in Romans on wrath. Number one, there's how God feels about sin all the time. The wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. That is, he's angry about it all the time. But there's also a coming future wrath where every man and woman will stand before the throne of God and he will open the book of life and the other books will be opened and he whose name is not written in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. That is the wrath that Paul is speaking of here that we in the future will be saved from. The reason we're saved from it is because he's justified us in the past, declared us forgiven. Our sins have already been covered. He's keeping us saved through our lifetime. And one day he will bring us to glory in glorification. That's why the title of the sermon today is justified forever. And if the fact that God has saved you in the past, he's keeping you saved in the present. And one day he's going to bring you to glory. doesn't bring joy to your life. I don't know what to do for you. Because that is a reason to have joy, even in the midst of difficult circumstances. So what Paul is doing in these verses was a popular way of making an argument in the ancient world or of trying a case. And remember, that's what Paul's doing. He's brought us under indictment as sinners. He's disabused us of any notion that we could get out of our situation. And now he's given us the implications of justification by faith. And, and the technique he's using is from the heavier to the lighter, from the greater to the smaller. Look at the phrase he uses then. He says, much more then. The idea in his point is that if God is able to do something that from our perspective is incredibly rare and difficult, then it would be no problem for God to do something that we would view as less difficult or more common. And so if that's what he's doing here, it's clear that he is. What is he pointing to that is so rare and difficult and uncommon? Well, it's justification. That someone would love his enemy enough to die in his place. But not only die in his place, but reconcile that enemy to himself and give him a place of honor as a child and a friend. Can you imagine a parent whose 10-year-old child was murdered, not only forgiving the murderer, but reconciling them and adopting them into their family? That's what God has done through Christ, through justification by faith. That's incredibly rare. It's a difficult thing to even think about so Paul's point is this, having done those two incredibly heavy and difficult and rare things, justification and reconciliation of enemies, Paul argues now that it is no problem for God to keep us saved. If he can save us and justify us when we're weak, when we are sinful, when we're ungodly and his enemies, it's much easier for God to keep us saved now that we're called his sons and daughters. Look at verse 6 again. Let's, let's read our entire text now 
with that framework and that context in his mind. For while we were still helpless, this speaks of before we were justified, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's talking about his sinless life, his literal death, and his glorious resurrection. For one will hardly die for a righteous man. We know that. We celebrate the heroism of those who will die for his friends. Though perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die, even as those in World War II did. But, so he's making a contrast between that and what Christ did. But God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. A much greater and more difficult thing. Much more than, see, he's arguing from the greater to the lesser, having now been justified, speaking of Christians, we've been justified at a point of time in the past by his blood, we shall be saved, that is in the future, from the wrath of God, that is from his judgment. How? Through him, through Jesus. Why? Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, that is before we were justified, we were reconciled to God, through the death of his son, much more. It's a greater thing. Having been recognized, we shall be saved. That is in the coming judgment by his life. See, Jesus has been resurrected and he's ascended into heaven and he's sitting on his throne at the right hand of the father. And what's he doing? He's always interceding for us. Do you know why we have assurance of salvation? Because our salvation, if we're truly born again, is as certain and secure as Christ's place in the Trinity. Now you think about that. So long as God the Father is pleased and satisfied with God the Son, we don't have to fear condemnation. What did God the Father say when Jesus first appeared on the scene in his public ministry when he was to be baptized by John the Baptist? What did the voice from heaven say? Behold my beloved son in whom I am well, what? Please. Do you think God the Father is less pleased with the son today now that he perfectly obeyed him in every way and laid down his life for those the Lord chose to save and did everything that he was supposed to do? Do you think God the Father is less pleased with the son today? I don't. He will always and ever be eternally pleased and satisfied with the son and he's proven that's true through his resurrection. Now stay with me, we're gonna wrap this all up. So, with all that said, if God didn't save you because you were sinless, and he didn't, remember he saved you when you were weak and helpless and ungodly and sinful and his enemy, if he didn't save you because you were sinless, he's not going to let you go because you are not sinless. This is the basis of our assurance and therefore our Christian joy. Now, as I said, when we get to chapter eight, Paul's going to go into incredible detail for an entire chapter to show the absolute and utter impossibility of ones losing their salvation. But for now, just hold on to the first verse of Romans eight. There is therefore now no zero, no possibility of condemnation or damnation or judgment or wrath, whatever word you want to use for those who are in Christ. And you became one who is in Christ at justification. You don't have to fear God's wrath. Now hear this. If he loved you and justified you and reconciled you when you were weak, ungodly, sinful, and rebellious, 
He will not pour out his wrath on you now that he calls you his child and now that Jesus calls you his friend. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. That is the basis of our Christian joy. Charles Hodge, another famous theologian, said it like this. If Christ died for us when we were his enemies, he will surely save us now that we're his friends. We don't have to fear the wrath of God. And what we're going to do this morning, for those of you who know the Lord Jesus and have this assurance of salvation, who have this joy that comes through assurance, is we're going to sing of the love of God. Because remember what John 3.16 says, he did all these things for us, motivated by love. Now we find that hard to believe and difficult to comprehend because almost all human love quote unquote, that we know about is motivated by self-interest. I love this person because they love me, because they make me feel better about myself or they fulfill something in me that's missing. That's not why God loves sinners. (laughs) Not because we were so cuddly and cute, he couldn't resist us. The Bible says in that we were dead in trespasses and sins. He chose to love us. See, all the glory for that goes to God, not us, right? He chose in his sovereignty to love us, and not only love us, love us as his enemies to the point of sending his son to take the punishment that we deserved. Not so he could bring us to a place of neutrality, so his anger would be satisfied enough that he'd just leave us alone and let us go on into oblivion after we die. But he loved us enough to send Jesus to die in our place that he might reconcile us unto himself, to remove the grounds of the hostility and embrace us as friends, and more than that, adopt us as sons and daughters. That's an incredible love, isn't it? And so this morning, Brother Matt is coming, we're going to sing together about the love of God. And as he does, if you're born again today, thank the Lord for your salvation. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine and then sing it as unto him if you're here today and you don't have that assurance of salvation you can but what you have to do is you have to divest yourself of anything you're trusting in other than the work of christ in your place you have to come to a place of spiritual poverty that's what jesus said in the sermon on the mount blessed are the poor in spirit blessed are those who recognize they don't have anything to offer god and they admit it That is, they agree with God's assessment of themselves. And they come to him as enemies of God and unconditionally surrender to his lordship on his terms. What are his terms? Empty hands, outturned pockets. You don't have anything to bring. You come as a needy pauper. If you'll come with that attitude and call on the name of the Lord, the scripture says you will be saved. Not only saved temporarily or until you mess up bad enough for God to get mad at you, you will be justified, what's our text say today? Forever. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together and thank him for that glorious truth. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we have studied these first five chapters of the book of Romans, there are some things that have become crystal clear. Number one, we're guilty. Whether we think of ourselves as an overt pagan, hedonist, whether we think of ourselves as morally 
upright or ethically pure, or, or even if we're a Jewish person, part of the Hebrew nation, you have indicted us all under the common grounds of guilty. And we are. And we're deserving of your wrath, which will surely come. And Lord, you are angry with sin all the time. And one day that will culminate in judgment. So Lord, our only hope is, is to come to you and sue for peace. And the only grounds of peace we have is justification by faith. We're weak. We're unable to do it ourselves. We are sinners. We're ungodly. Father, we are hopeless in short. We're so thankful that you love sinners, weak and rotten and ungodly sinners, so much that you sent your one and only Son into the world to take the punishment that we richly deserve and that whoever would believe in him would not suffer your wrath, would not ultimately perish, Father would have eternal life. Lord, for every born-again believer in this room, thank you. What joy that assurance brings into our heart. And Lord, I pray that every member of our church would live every day, not just during the Christmas season, but every day of the year in that blessed assurance. But Lord, we know there's lots of lost people in the world, in our community, maybe in this room. We pray if there's even one lost soul who knows you not, that today your spirit would call them unto yourself and breathe life into them. For your name's sake, Lord, do it, we pray. Many times over. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We give him all the glory and the honor for anything good that happens today, and we pray it in his name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.